What did you think of the New York Times piece? <clears throat> Is this going to be recorded? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There are some really, really good, sophisticated um, interpretations of that. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to answer. Something that's really important and something that is not captured is, um, again, all of the stuff that we've been talking about leading up to 1825, the why that that would be something that Boyer would, uh, well, you know, want to do or be, you know, forced to do, right? Uh, sort of a little bit more context about debates, right, among the plural colonial lobby in the Atlantic world would be really useful. I think also something that um, is really crucial is so many Haitians, again, critiquing this for so long, um, Bate going on record, putting Pétion en blast, and um, showing the absurdity of an indemnity payment, that even the idea of it in 1815 is something that would be so well placed in uh, this this long study that they did. Similarly, um, I'm uh, co-editing a translation of a late 19th century thinker um, named uh, Louis-Joseph Janvier. My co-editor is Brandon Bird and um, Nadev Menard, who is a scholar and professor uh, in Haiti, uh, did the translation. But so Jean Fier is really important. And I think it really, I mean, you know, I know everyone, everyone who's working on 19th century Haitian thinkers, like can give more context and more voice to the people, to the Haitians who were actively uh, uh, calling out these predatory finance capitalist moves um, mm -hmm. and this sort of thirst for debt in the late 19th century. But so just we, we you know, have read so deeply this text from Jean Vier called Haiti for the Haitians, Haiti aux Haitiens. Mm -hmm. And there's this last essay that he writes called The Trap. And it's actually writing a lot about the 1874-1875 loans, made news, but also discovered, quote unquote, in the New York Times piece. But it's so interesting to read him talking about those loans and talking about how uh, extractive how dangerous, how um, how alarmed he is um, at these practices. Not, I mean, of course, of these European banks who are just seeing Haitians and other Caribbean uh, people as you know, potential marks in a way. He doesn't use that language, but right there's this, just this. They're they're just trying to entice you. He see, and, and you know, you go back into the period and you read these um, these circulars, these debt offerings, and they're just so. Um, you know, they're so, they're, they're just trying to sell you. But in addition to that, he really calls out those um, Haitians who see an ability to make money on this because absolutely they can. And so he's just like sounding the alarm on this, these extractive um, new, you know, forms of neocolonialism. And he just sounds the alarm and says what will happen. I mean, he basically how could I say it? He, he, he presages, he sees, he foresees U.S. occupation mm -hmm. uh, with just like chilling uh, clarity and chilling prescience. Um, I'll just, if you don't mind, I'll read from this piece called The Trap, where he basically says like, we're going to be invaded and we're going to lose our sovereignty. I'll just read. So this is Jean Vier and this is Nadev's translation. When the debt is consolidated, if it is, five or 10 years later, Financial syndicates belonging to some European nation or another will snatch up Haitian bonds, buying them and clearing out the European and American markets by driving down prices by telegraph. Then seizing upon the first pretext, which they will provoke themselves as needed, helped by unscrupulous legislators or advocates of the extreme colonial policy, 
they will send ships to our ports to display mizzen masts, bearing the military ensign and scuttle armed with steel cannons. If we do not resist, our cities will be occupied. If we resist, they will be bombed like Alexandria was bombed. In both cases, we will be subjected to a political and financial protectorate. Right. That's 1884. And I think so many people have made some really, really smart critiques about the way that the New York Times framed their writing about the way that they both claimed to discover while at the same time representing a, a journalistic institution that has for so long refused to recognize. Uh, those voices are people that we should absolutely be listening to. So I just want to add to the course of that um, and say that there are also Haitian voices that I absolutely want us, people who work on the 19th century, to be putting out there uh, because they were seeing this, they were calling it for what it is, they knew what it is, and it's it's almost even that much more unbelievably uh, agonizing to read it because they were so right and they were saying it and they were making it as public as they could. Mm -hmm. um, I guess I should say, on the other hand, like, I'm so happy to random people, my family, um, people I don't even know are like, wow, you know, kids at the drop-off at my kid's school talking about it. And so that's also really good. And I want to do as much as I can to like engage those people and keep that conversation going. So I recognize that and I'm, I'm happy about that. And I'm so thankful to all of the people that gave their time um, that may not be in that bibliography, uh, but who really care so deeply about this and believe that more you know, more um, visibility for it in such a massive uh, paper is really good. And so I'm thankful to them, especially. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, you know, they'll they'll try to do a better job next time, you know, of because uh, if they had left that part out, that that rah, 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 look what we discovered, look what we discovered, right? It probably would have been better received, right? Even if, let's say, they were crappy on the work citation aspects of it, you know? I, I do not disagree. And also, I will say it wasn't just, I mean, a lot of people have been on so many annoying think pieces, but it wasn't just historians or scholars that noticed that. Again, a lot of these very smart New York Times readers were like, what's that about? Like, before I'd even said anything, you know, again, random people texting me being like, what, how'd you think about how they framed that? That was like, Ugh. you know, so I don't, you know, yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, but uh, certainly, um, again, certainly the conversation and uh, the call for reparations mm -hmm. is really important. So like, Let's get behind that. Uh, yeah, like has France answered yet? Will France answer? Can we get France to answer? Um, these are all things that are front of mind and I want it, us to like it, concentrate our efforts on. Yeah, the bank too. They oh. say they'll get back to us, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh man, so much. Again, I think there's some great stuff um, on the debt, especially in the late 19th century and that sort of really, uh, Guy Pierre's work um, is really great. Uh, a lot of people writing about that. That's fantastic that you get a whole lot more play, even among scholars. So that's awesome. Today on the Negmaon Podcast. My purpose, really the guiding purpose in doing this work, you could call it the ethics and politics, if you will, was first and foremost, and I hope still always to do justice to Haiti, its history, its people, its intellectual legacies, and again, the diversity, the complexity, the nuance, sitting in the uncomfortable, right? I tried to do that as rigorously as possible, as carefully as possible, which is not to say that my work is unimpeachable or that I didn't make interpretations that people disagree with or that there aren't things I got wrong. But I just, I think anyone who subscribes to and supports that ethical imperative of doing justice to a place that has been so unjustly treated 
for so long and unjustly interpreted and you know, utilized. They understand that part of doing that work involves disagreeing with ways that Haiti's been interpreted, depicted, or characterized. This persistent slippage that you talk about uh, mm -hmm. between 1804 and 1806, you were unsparing in your critique of some of your colleagues and how they portrayed post-revolutionary Haiti. Are you still friends with most of them? I, I, this is a just a to-the-point question. I don't know if when I say it, I sound like it's just a pet peeve or like a hobby horse or something. <laughs> I really think the oft-repeated, but, but changing, and I think that's really important to note, this idea that 1804 was the Haitian Republic. I think it's actually really, really important. Maybe, maybe the most important thing, the thing that I think is the most important, but I still think it's really crucial to bring attention to in the way that I do and reconsider it because it participates in this continued sort of lack of complexity, but maybe even beyond that, obscures some really crucial parts of, not even crucial early parts of post-independence Haiti, but like things that remain true of post-independence Haiti, again, throughout the long 19 or long 19th century that I trace in the book. I guess just to be clear, when Haiti declared its independence from France, um, with the official uh, declaration of independence on January 1st, 1804, they'd done so in November of 1803. Um, with this 18 January 1st, 1804 declaration, Haiti was the state of Haiti. And then Dessalines uh, replaced it with the empire of Haiti. Haiti did not have a republic until 1806. And this republic was mired in civil war until the uh, death of Henri Christophe who'd had run the state of Haiti and then the Royaume d'Haïti until 1820. For me, what's really important about this, and again, why I just harp on it so much, is that I think referring to 1804 as the Republic already obscures this deep political and ideological sort of divisions, these divisions we see at work that shaped the early post-independence period, and especially this crucial 1804 to 1806 period. I'd go so far as to say, I don't think I say it in the book, but I think it fundamentally erases Dessalines and the radical nature of Haitian independence in these first two years. It also facilitates the narrative of the inevitable republic, is what I call it, um, this idea that Christophe's northern state was strange and aberration. Dessalines' empire becomes just sort of this awkward thing that we account for or don't, right? It's like, oh, but then, oh yeah, there was that rather than kind of considering it as part of the post-independence political project. Also, I, you know, I think referring to 1804 starts to put the Haitian Revolution squarely within a French revolutionary or sort of Western Republican Enlightenment tradition that Dessalines was actively critiquing, not embracing. For me, that's really crucial. And again, I know it seems maybe to some like a small thing, but I think it actually encapsulates so much more and so to get to think with that, debate that, really tease out why why both it happens, right? That this this really is persistent. And then what we actually see when mm -hmm. we, you know, sort of question it, um, to me is so productive. You wrote about how the Northern print culture was much more prolific than the Southern, uh, the, the Republican output. Mm -hmm. and, and how, uh, in terms of the archives that are available to us today, Northerners, they're all over, like Caribbean, I think you said, and, and, um, mm -hmm. and other places in America, in Europe, whereas the, the Southern output is, what, BNF, I think you said, in France, right? 
Like Primarily, yeah, they're actually also in South America. It shows up in some interesting, of course, that makes sense, right? The Bolivarian uh, right, yeah, right, yeah. More, I'm assuming there's much more material out there from what the Northerners had to say, right? Like, mm-hmm. why wouldn't why wouldn't the scholarship sort of naturally go there just from a basic supply and demand type of situation. That's so, an excellent. Yeah, an excellent point and a good question. If I could just say on that point, I mean, so one thing is there's this amazing resource. It's like a an active um, bibliography map that Gregory Piero, who I know you talked to, and um, Tabitha McIntosh um, mm-hmm. put together. I have it in a footnote in my book, but maybe we can I can send it to you and you can put it in show notes if that's something you do. Yes. But um, it's great. It's actually they it's it's a you know it's an evolving thing. Obviously, people continue to find stuff, but it's this um sort of open source bibliography of writing from the northern um, kingdom and all these diverse places it's held. So it's cool to be able to visualize that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously, I know you spoke with Marlena Doubt. Her work is absolutely crucial to sort of the erasure of um Nor- you know, uh, Vatsi and his um, Black Atlantic humanism and his you know all of his writing. And so it's mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's both well-documented and yet, again, stubbornly persistent. Did you find the same thing with the Haitian scholarship? The Haitian scholarship also suffered from this uh, persistent slippage? Yeah, like, you know, that, I, I've never thought of that. And, 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 and the answer is I can't think of a single example from 19th century Haitian scholarship. That's okay. not to say it doesn't exist, mm-hmm. but I think that's telling. I think this slippage really comes both from the deliberate effort of, again, a Republican historiography to, to erase, to, for, for, I mean, I think it's obvious to me. It's certainly, I make it clear in my book, the whys of the post-1820 sort of both political and intellectual project to render strange the non-Republican aspects of early Haiti and Haitian independence. Uh, so it's a product of that, but in doing that, they don't right lie, or they don't. I know they don't say Tino Four was the Republic, right? That it's almost in itself unthinkable. I, I think it's a product of that very concerted effort to depict sort of the early post-independence period in a certain way. I think it's also, and I, I do uh, uh, make this clear as well uh, in the introduction, that it's part of scholars, but also um, sort of the media and the long heritage and history of people outside of Haiti have wanted to do with Haiti or have wanted to make Haiti mean. You know, Haiti gets mobilized and marshaled to illustrate tons of different ideas and defend different interpretations of the past. I don't need to point it out, obviously, for your your listeners, but it's it's just worth, and that's absolutely in quotes, gets mobilized to justify European or U.S. supremacy, white supremacy, the supremacy of modernity and progress of capitalism. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, Haiti as an anti-slavery, anti-colonial republic, quote unquote, gets mobilized to illustrate the achievements of the French Revolution, for example, or the Enlightenment taken to their most radical instantiation. Again, that's in quotes too. I, I draw on Chris Branji uh, for this quote in my book, but it's this desire of what we, and I, I put myself there in there, scholars anchored in a Western Enlightenment institution or tradition, what we want 1804 specifically to represent. Formula, that idea, um, puts what the, the insurgents did and what 1804 was, it sort of inserts it squarely back into a European logic and a European region for what formerly enslaved people did. And actually, I have a quote from Jean Casimir that I wanted to make sure I pulled here because I think he frames the problem so well. Ways that we conceive of, you know, the revolution and about what it did and how we sort of talk about it in the slippage. It's in his recent book, The Haitians, A Decolonial History, which Mm -hmm. again, cannot more highly recommend. Laurent Dubois translated it, but he calls sort of the 
where he, he talks about how these categories that we draw from of the French Revolution and Enlightenment reason sort of don't capture the actions and philosophies of the insurgent masses. Mm-hmm. And that part of his work, this decolonial history, is to move beyond, outside of, and away from these constructs. So he writes, um, quote, it does not do justice to the 1804 revolution to lock it into a construct incapable of acknowledging the centrality of the political projects of the laboring masses who carried it out. And he that philosophy he elaborates later is tout moun se moun, every person is a person, mm-hmm. which he sees as both in critique of, but but different, right? This is the, the part that enlightenment philosophy could not fully embrace. And he, you know, argues, I'll just quote one more time, while those emancipated from a life of a slave fought for their own, their lives as citizens, the Bosal and the true Haitians who joined them went to war for the pure and simple rights of a human being. Hmm. Fascinating. He and I don't entirely agree on Desaline, and I'm really willing to sort of rethink some of what I'm doing sort of with this idea of like sort of the Haitians more broadly. But um, yeah, it, those are like productive, really interesting conversations. Mm-hmm. What are some of the agreements, disagreements that you have or different perspective on Desaline? Oh, well, I mean, so, I mean, Casimir is absolutely, I mean, the book is, is, very critical of um, oligarchies. I mean, that is that is something that um, it is the Haitian people, it is their resistance. And so Desalines as a state leader, you know, represents a formation of a state that both allowed for an extractive, you know, regime, but also did not honor the, the Haitians' resistance and their sort of philosophies of freedom. So no, but I mean, it's also interesting. Desalines is sort of interestingly not fully part of, like I actually would want him to go further with Desalines. I have a lot of questions about where he sort of gestures to this. He's very pro Vate. He really does embrace sort of that Bosal perspective. And so Mm -hmm. maybe I want him to sort of think a little bit more about Desalines. So do you find that uh, those that kind of get the plume, do you, did you find like a direct correlation with actual on the ground action or were they pretext to or justification after the fact or or did you just pretty much kind of carve that just that space to focus on the back and forth in terms of in terms of, uh, you know, the print culture? That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I did. I was most I was most interested in focusing on the print culture unto itself because I thought it was so important. But absolutely, you are noting also looked at this long history and actually what was going on on the ground. And oftentimes it's after the fact. But that's not necessarily true. I mean, you know, it's a, it's an evolving, I, w- I would say rather than being sort of an event or a, a battle in and of itself, it's like a part of the arsenal. It's one of the weapons, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there are um, on the ground skirmishes. This is happening, say, uh, after Desalines assassination. Um, and those happen first. And then there's this just absolute unleashing of print material, these pamphlets. And then you get a little bit of a, a skirmish and then back and forth. You know, under someone like Suluk, it's happening to justify and a little bit package what's happening rather than actually sort of be part of the arsenal. So why Haiti? 
I did my PhD jointly in the Institute of French Studies and the uh, Department of French Literature, Thought uh, and Culture. But I, again, I had the very, very, very good fortune of working with Michael Dash. So he was just a key inspiration to kind of think otherwise about, say, what French literature was and what even maybe Francophone literature was. But I think I also felt very strongly as I sort of moved forward in my research and even in just some of my lists, my master's lists, and then my um, PhD comps lists, that my understanding of like what French universalism was and uh, the French Republic, even these foundational ideals of liberty, equality, and fraternity were so out of, as I was learning more, right? As I was learning more about the French empires, as I was learning more about the French, uh, the French and Haitian revolutions, that these concepts were so hollow when it came to addressing sort of Haiti, both, both again, the revolution and the 19th century. And so, um, sort of these nagging uh, questions I had about France's just really blind commitment to its own universalist uh, glories really started to become so much more obviously stories that they told and histories that they wrote that excluded so much truth or so much of their past that Haiti became this way both for me to make sense of that and a way for me to continue to challenge it in order to more, again, do justice to Haiti. I mean, I, I see them as, it's it's too simple to say, you know, it's one's a mirror of the other, but Haiti's history and so much of its, of its post-independence reality, I mean, I don't have to say, I'm sure what everyone is thinking, I'm sure you are thinking it right now, the indemnity, the 1825 indemnity. I mean, so much of France's past is bound to Haiti's. And so Haiti became this place for me to maybe rectify that. The uh, the word liberté. Uh, how are the two factions, the Republicans and the Dessalinians? Dessalinians. Talk about how each of them used that term and, and, and what it meant to each of them. Liberté. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, again, part of what I'm sort of, I really teased out in the introduction, um, but I think I've talked about in sort of a few of my other answers, which is this idea of sort of this framing of the inevitable republic and the problem of um, positioning sort of the French Revolution as the mm -hmm. origin or the logic that defined Haitian independence and, and you know, even associating it with Dessalinian thought. So there's a liberty that defines itself within the terms of this sort of either French revolutionary or enlightenment sort of progress type of thought, right? Liberty property, security, resistance to oppression. This is sort of this idea of a Republican liberté that I identify. And then there's a liberté that defines itself as freedom from colonialism, the plantation and enslavement, and, but not necessarily these other sort of uh, notions of liberté. But I think, I mean, that, you know, that's sort of a rather schematic and simplistic where either one of these conceptions of freedom were being contested and threatened by slaveholding states. So what's really key, I think, for me here is that the Republican notion of, again, um, liberté in these French revolutionary or um, French Republican terms, they they were being made legible or, or even sort of politicized and publicized um, in a way legible to Western powers 
in Atlantic Republican tradition that had kind of gone underground, at least in terms of the political or geopolitical chessboard in the early 19th century. They're kind of saying the Enlightenment ideals and French revolutionary values survived here. We are where these ideas went for protection and cultivation. And on the other hand, you have this Desalinian conception, as I've called it and you've identified, that does not trust, fundamentally does not trust this French revolutionary foundation of the idea of freedom. It's defining its own freedom and also like resisting and critiquing those ideals, both within independent Haiti among a Republican faction and in the Atlantic world, um, the sort of tradition that exists. So I think Desalinian liberté in this sense is a recognition of the limits of these conceptions of freedom as they pertain to formerly enslaved Black people. I don't think he was wrong about that. Um, we see the 19th century continue to move the goalposts on notions of autonomy, citizenship, and freedom uh, that progressively excluded, and again, the paradox there in that formulation is really key, people outside of a Western and increasingly white-oriented notion of like civilization and you know citizenship. There's also just a quote from Guy Piero, um, who I know you interviewed on Desalinian thought. He called it in his book, quote, a bold attempt at lighting a beacon beyond the confines of white Western thoughts. The word peoples. Ah oui. Mm -hmm. From from uh, 18 from Desalines 1804 Act de l'Independence. You 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 wanted to emphasize that for us. Why? Yeah, I mean the contested meaning of it anyway. Yeah, the so there is yeah. there is this um sort of history as or like looking at the different iterations of versions of this document and it is uh, spelled as pipitas. So what uh, is really important there and I think it's illustrative sort of of what I mean, you know, we're reading these old documents and sometimes there is a word that you cannot make out and you either have to assume that it's been incorrectly transcribed. Very clearly the word pipas, which is, as I uh, define it, not as piteous, which again would be a mistranslation in which it has been translated as, but as a deceptive, which again, the word deceptive being so different, right? And this is to think about, uh, and then I want to pull it up in the book just so I don't uh, get it wrong. We're talking about uh, the French writing and the eloquence of French writing, which can be deceptive instead of piteous. I think just the word deceptive there is so crucial because what is happening is not that the, the interpretation of, of piteous or sad would be that their eloquence doesn't work well or that, you know, maybe it's a critique of their abilities, um, their, you know, ability to write. Uh, that a Haitian writer would be levying against them. And certainly there's plenty of that between the North and the South. They attack each other on, you know, whether or not they're following um, the correct poetic forms. I mean, there's a lot of just, you know, low blows in terms of their ability to write and eloquence there as well. But this idea, crucial document, the act of independence, trying to do another of thinking back to the public sphere and in just all of the massive writing that the colonial lobby has expended trying to get to, to lobby the government to send ships to retake the island, all of their plans for how to get back this productive colony. It's just so important that we understand and that we know that the uh, act of independence, this, this declaration made very clear that they knew that is exactly what the French were doing and would continue to try to do. And that part of their independence was being so attentive to those attempts. 1825 looms large here. Like there are so many attempts to 
counter or to get back what was lost. And it's that we will not be gullible. We will not be fall victim to these deceptive, you know, attempts. Why is a pamphlet different from, or is it different from other public focused upper mediums like a book or a newspaper writing at the time? Yeah. Ooh. Love print culture. Yeah, I mean, a pamphlet, it, but I think maybe to go back to, to sort of this idea of paper war. I mean, it is a, uh, it's already inscribing itself into a political sort of combative space. And that could be, again, within a wider Atlantic context or within an internal, even an internal within, say, a regime, right? There is a lot of pamphleteering um, within the Southern Republic, for example, as there are opposition groups that get mobilized, especially in the later um, 18 teens. So, um, I mean, I think the first most important thing about a pamphlet is that it is absolutely politically charged from its conception, or mm -hmm. conception, right? Um, and that goes back again. I mean, I think it's really worth considering this pamphlet writing, not as like, oh, Haiti became independent in 1804, and then it has its own print culture, like, and that somehow this was just like invented out of whole cloth. There is a strong and really a uh, apparent and totally unavoidable tradition of political pamphleteering that goes back to, you know, say the French religious wars or even before that, that that sort of set the terms of uh, pamphleteering in some ways are really useful. Of course, then there's all the political pam pamphleteering from the French Revolution and all of this sort of informs the public sphere and the practice of print. Um, I don't, you know, don't have to remind some listeners, but it's really important to note that the printers who were operational in uh, early post-independence Haiti were all printers who came from France and were printing under the French government in Saint-Domingue when it was the colony. There's a, a continuity there that I think is important as well. You know, in addition, the pamphlet is a, it's political. It is, I mean, books, like books are great. <laughs> I think in this early period, it's especially with the, the publishing uh, capacities on the ground in post-independence Haiti. Um, not really the place that we'd want to look or, or mm -hmm. the book is too much of like a, con a, a construct that takes us out of this political sort of post-independent civil war moment. Mm -hmm. I, I make the argument that that holds true, you know, well into the late 19th century, like who's publishing books and where and why is I think a really important question that some, I think we should all be asking ourselves, especially about Haitian writing. But I think again, in this early period, it's the ability to control the mechanisms of print, both in the North and the South, that are crucial. It is essential for Haitian independence. It is essential for communicating the political project because uh, the opposition to Haiti was also happening both um, militarily, but in writing and in these massive PR campaigns that the colonial lobby was waging, that they'd been waging since the revolution. And so to do it um, in print and to make it movable and legible again in a in a in a pamphlet form and then send it all around the world like that really matters and so it's mm. a very i think deliberate and conscientious form all sorts of political uh, significance and and a formal sort of a formal coherence that allows them to say a lot beyond what they're writing right it you know the way that they put it together how they choose to respond who gets a pretty, you know, elaborate cover page versus who's just, you know, doing a quick one-off. I mean, this is all really saying something more beyond just the words themselves that I think is really important. So I'll close with this. Papers often worked in tandem. I think what's maybe more interesting is not seeing the distinction between genres, even though I think, or form, even though I think that can be really useful, 
but also seeing how used and reused this writing was. And again, Marlena Doubt um, does great work on this, especially connecting it to like a broader Anglophone print culture uh, uh, model. But it's not, it's not a critique to say like, oh, well, you know, this political thinker in um, Christophe's regime reprinted this pamphlet in the newspaper. And so it's just derivative and not original or like somehow, I don't know, like it's really, I think it's fascinating and really important to note that they thought something was so important that, or, or even just this practice of like, we're going to do a pamphlet, we're going to do it in the newspaper, we're going to do a collection of works, we're going to send it here. Like we want to make this argument in as many different modes as we can. Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. also says something too. Uh, you write that you embrace a specific definition of regionalism. You touched on it briefly earlier. That's in contrast to how it is customarily used in Caribbean studies. Uh, wh what's your definition of, of regionalism? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I mean, this is, I, I really am thinking particularly about how sort of uh, a French literary or even a notion of francophonie would um, define, say, the Caribbean as a region. And the Caribbean can be a region, and that's great. But in defining the Caribbean as a region, or even some parts of the Caribbean as a region, there are just a host of issues that are already put into place and already creating sort of exclusions and effacements in doing that. So for example, to look at the Caribbean as a region sort of already is putting Europe at the center, right? Europe is the center, the Caribbean is a region. We are looking at it from the outside and it is sort of like an opaque. Whereas I want to maybe look at a more traditional definition of regionalism, provincializing the Caribbean, to borrow Chakrabarty's term, you know, where it's not, you know, we're looking at actual very small regions of regions, right? The, the Southern Peninsula, we could argue is maybe one region, but actually within that, there are small pockets of really different, really strongly held traditions that that region creates. Um, Lekai is one example of that. And, and Jérémy is another example. And then the Doko, um, just in, in the Grand Anse, is another region. And so really trying to um, embrace, again, maybe a more traditional notion of regionalism that does not consider the Caribbean as a discrete region, but really looks at one half of the island and its diverse regions and really kind of try and think about that in that sense. Looking at the post-independence Haiti, what can you give us some some key points what actually caused the division between the supporters of Dessalines, Northern Authoritarian State, and the Republican opposition in the South? Oh, that's a big one. And <laughs> I will be so happy to shout out two works that are forthcoming. And I'm so excited about one is Julia Gaffield's biography of Dessalines. Mm -hmm. And the other one is uh, Marlena Doubt's biography of Christophe in the spirit of moving uh, scholarship forward and contributing to the conversation. There's so much more to do. Can't wait to have them on. I know. Yeah. I mean, gosh, that's going to be so exciting to hear more as this work comes out. I mean, this the podcast only gets richer and it's really uh, exciting to sort of witness. There's so much good stuff and there is so much more good stuff coming. So yeah, that's it's awesome. Pretty, it's a pretty exciting time. I think a couple things that I'll just uh, sort of, you know, tease here. One is that the Southern Peninsula, as I mentioned, is itself just a really unique, but also has its own history from that really uh, sets it apart, both in terms of, you know, we'll just talk about the geography. Um, it is really discreet. Uh, it is hard to get from uh, the Southern Peninsula to the other parts of the country. So in a way it was cut off, in a way 
um, it developed in its own sort of distinctive manner, especially uh, the center of uh, Cap Francais, which was such a, again, an intellectual and colonial center in so many ways. Also the history of trading of sort of powers during the revolutionary period and the English that colonized or took over in the South during the revolutionary period. I think also the real tradition, again, um, Lekai is a Republican stronghold. Um, and has been. There's so many interesting sort of um, insurrections and movements that start there. Um, Alan Louis Hall, I have his uh, book uh, in my bibliography. He wrote a book called La Péninsule Républicaine. So he sees the South, you know, again, in this very, um, as, a, as, a, as an origin or as, a, as the Republican Peninsula. So that, you know, um, that just gives you just a little bit of a flavor of like mm -hmm. what the South was and why it was. You know, Dessalines, uh, his, when he um, set up his state and then the empire, he wasn't in the North, which, which I think is significant, right? He was right. in Dessalines, you know, Oh, so there's also interesting diversity there in terms of the in terms of the way post-independence uh, ideology and political affiliation uh, sort of separated out. But there is a pretty clear line, like right around Saint-Marc, south and then north. I think one other thing I'll say, just to sort of do a little self-critique and, and think more about ways to move the conversation forward, is that when I'm doing these sort of somewhat schematic geographic and political um, divisions, I'm talking about intellectual leaders, people who had access to print and, um, you know, who what we can sort of discern um, looking at the, the map and looking at uh, the history. But that is not to say that the people who lived within these two different regions and under these different regimes necessarily agreed or thought that. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, there's I, I, I just don't want to make it seem as though like the people who chose to live, like people didn't have the choice necessarily. Right. These divisions happened and some people had the means to leave, leave the north and go to the south and vice versa. But, you know, I mean, I think it's I think I want to make sure that I'm talking only about these political actors and right, right. less about the people that live there. So how important was violence? Was it used as just sort of a defensive feature or was it generally a means to an end? Oh, I mean, I'll go back to start to something I mentioned because this is such a, a delicate and important question, one that I do not want to take lightly. So to set it up, violence had permeated life in colonial Saint-Domingue, in the War of Independence, with the tactics and warfare of Bonaparte's army under Leclerc and Rochambeau. It also, though, sort of defined the public sphere as well. This is both true of the colonial lobby during the early years after the 1791 insurrections, and just the absolute sort of terror that they depicted for their own ends as well. But also, and this is uh, just so well um, documented in uh, Jean-Pierre Leblonec's um, On Vertière, he just really traces with, with precision and going back into the archive, the writing of both the colonial lobby and then of um, in the memoirs and the different post sort of war writings of generals and, and different members of Leclerc, the expeditionary army and sort of how how much they used violence both to depict the insurgents, but also to justify their actions and also in their proposals for how to retake the colony. Because the point was to retake the colony. It was to reinstate a plantation economy. It was to re-enslave. Re it was to once again 
make of Saint-Domingue this extremely productive, fertile territory for them uh, to uh, extract from. So, so I want like that is also the way I want to preface sort of the the work that violence does in Desaninianism, if we will. We are in a uh, a lived sphere. We are in a lived sort of zone of experience, and also a public sphere that is defined by violence. That being sort of the part, the point that we're starting from, and the the need to choose my words correctly again because I recognize how fraught and how important this is. The need to wrest their freedom from a state. I get, I mean, I'm even just thinking, you know, so in 1802, by the time Bonaparte is sending the expeditionary army, he, the consulate has taken over in France in 1799. He's moving away from sort of the Republic as we know it. One could even argue that the Republic barely exists anymore. There's an understanding that the French state that is sending troops ships to retake the island are not operating under these principles, again, of freedom and equality. And so violence becomes both the way, discursive mode, but also a type of warfare to wrest that freedom and independence to create an anti-colonial, anti-slavery state, but also to prove Haiti's commitment to not being re-enslaved. Mm-hmm. And and I, I think that is crucial. Again, I think it's just crucial that we not look at Desalinian violence in and of itself as some creation, but rather within this, it's just a saturated lived sphere and public sphere. It is it is a form of warfare too, right? Like, again, we don't have to go back, but I would, and I don't, you know, recommend sort of sitting for a long time in these archives. They are really shocking and, and just it's a lot to, to read. As Marlene da- points out, Baron de Vaté um, uh, sort of includes this compendium of these violences. Le Blonec shows how deeply this violence was thought out and sort of engineered. All of that to say, I think it's really important to see the, the choice of violence. And, and I, you, you point out, or you're right to point out that I sort of trace this violence recurring, this sort of imagery and language throughout the 19th century, because I see it as really playing out in two different ways of thinking about how to present independent Haiti in in the Atlantic sphere post-independence. There is sort of erasing of 1804 to 1806 in the inevitable republic framing, and this is among Haitian scholars and among, well, mostly among historians and intellectuals, and not uh, put it in its context in order to move toward a idea of progress, an idea of Haiti, as of independent Haiti, of the republic, as being part of this civilized sort of world. And I put civilized in quotes, I want to make sure. Like the terms of sort of Republican, again, freedom and, and, and this independence is to, to present progress and to, and to say Haiti's independence is now squarely within this Republican tradition, um, which again is in and of itself, I, get, I think a little bit silly. I mean, we could only think about like the French uh, terror and, and the mm-hmm. violence. It was so crucial there to, to see how sort of fabricated that is. But so there's this idea of sort of, and it's a way, it's like a discursive way of quarantining or sort of creating a, a, a little bit of a bubble around this violence. This was then, we have moved on. This was him, he is gone. And really, I think there is, I, I will just maybe read this quote because I see a way of returning to that Desalinian violence, the, but, but of the need to make sure that 
independence is understood within this hostile Atlantic world and that the reason for independence or the mode of independence was in this saturated sphere of violence that was done to the insurgents and to the formerly enslaved. But it comes from Emile No, who wrote in, in the preface to the Histoire des Caciques, which is a uh, work that he wrote and then was was published, um, I believe, in 1855. But I will I will look that up. It might be 1856. It's a quote that you read, so maybe you could just read it and I can respond to it. <laughs> he defined uh, Emile No defined Haitians, humanity, and civilization not by their ability to measure up to Atlantic standards, but by their act of resistance of reclaiming their human rights through violence against an inherently violent world system. Unquote. Uh, and this has happened you know, mid, mid 19th century, but it's this reframing or, or, or return really, there's actually in this period a rethinking of sort of the way that Haitian independence was written, sort of challenging the sanitized Republican version that, you know, had to, had to, in order to sort of promote its vision and its project had to, to efface the Desalinian project of independence. But here it's a sort of a reminder and a, really in a radical way that what was what the most central element, the thing that defined this 1804 project was the inherently violent world system in which the colonial Saint-Domingue existed and the way of claiming human rights that Dusselinian, both action and thought, did it. that was organized in Marchand to present the imperial constitution. I find that that was just fascinating. Emperor Dessalines is out and about doing his thing in the East. So sketch the scene for us, especially in terms of sort of the theatrical performances that his scene cabinet secretarial core and, and name them. And what are they What are they projecting to this audience? Yeah, this is a great scene. So I'm glad that uh, registered for you. And oh my, does it not also, I hope, I mean, again, in the hope of doing this sort of close reading of this counter, some of the denigrating portraiture that I identified later in the Saluk chapter, yes. right? Yeah. You know, so I think, I think really trying to give life to this and show. But so, yeah, I mean, and, and again, with most of these things, I'm as interested in sort of the the content of this as it is for sort of the performative and symbolic elements of it. Yeah, but so this uh, ceremony uh, to present the imperial constitution, it's really important that the Desalines secretaries read documents and made speeches out loud, right? So there is this idea that it's not just that the document itself is an important one. Of course it is. It renders things legible in the Atlantic world you know, for other world powers. But it also shows how this uh, imperial constitution was disseminated to a, lar a larger public and that there is something that's really important to the ceremonial grandeur. I think, you know, when we're in a maybe a, a more modern, not very critical mode, sort of we're, we're automatically like, oh, ceremonial grandeur is just an attempt by a politician to like, you know, protect their reign and whatever, whatever. This is really important, right? Multi, I mean, we're what, 1805. So the number of different languages that are still spoken among uh, the formerly enslaved. Some remaining battalions, Polish soldiers who had uh, stayed after the uh, expeditionary army had left. You know, we're talking about a public that is multilingual and probably doesn't understand all of it. So the, I think the performative and the ceremonial is really important. And something that, again, tells us a lot about both the political savvy, but also the way that this kind of stuff worked. And so we have so little of that. And again, Julia's work is going to be absolutely outstanding for this. Like this will be a tease and we'll get so much more. 
Um, but I think something that's really interesting, and again, I go into it in detail in the book, but like, and this maybe gets to something else that I wanted to talk about, and I hope you'll allow me to sort of do a little Please. sideways Please. go into, but I mean, you Please. know, there's this question about, is Desaline an author? Did Deborah Jensen does great work on this. And there are a lot of people who are debating it. Um, Chris Bonji talks about quote unquote, um, scribal complicity and the scribal politics of this kind of writing. I definitely want to consider that this is a collaborative process. It's something that absolutely is taking place in conversation and collaboration. Dixon mm -hmm. is definitely the political author of this. And I, I believe Deborah makes that point as well to, to be like, well, no, he didn't write it. Or, you know, this was clearly Boisantonet. I mean, they're all working together toward a political project. And so I much rather see it as collaborative than I would as sort of like trying to discern who's the author of what. Um, I think that takes away both from Desalines, but also I think maybe misunderstands the nature of this political regime. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's actually true of Christophe as well. It's obviously a little more complicated. And again, I think Marlena's work is going to really shed light on this. But there's a lot of evidence, and I, I speak to some of it in my book, of, again, a collaborative process by which pamphlets are written. You know, there, there a lot of them are writing the same thing in different ways. This is actually not too dissimilar from the revolutionary period as well. I think that's worth pointing out, you know, some of the political pamphlets written during the revolutionary period by André Rigaud, uh, when mm -hmm. he was defending himself against accusations made against him by the civil commission, the French civil commission. You know, you write a pamphlet, you have somebody else write a pamphlet <laughs> defending you, you know, there's a lot of like everybody rides together and they write these pamphlets and they sort of defend the cause. And so I think there's absolutely that at work here as well. And so these questions of sort of who was it or can we say Desilene is an author is, is um, getting, you know, sort of missing the point without a doubt. Um, also, you know, deciding sort of what is the line here and what is the political project. We get some great um, uh, people, you know, these these figures that come up that will become really important. Um, Cholnat is there, Juste Cholnat, um, which again, uh, really a critical member of both the early um, uh, post-independence period under Desalines and then under Christophe. Um, there's also a Diacroix Aîné, uh, whom, so he read, well, so Jean-Lat read the text of the constitution. I think that's really important. Um, Diacroix Aîné, who was in the military, read the new military penal code. Um, Basley, who was the uh, a general um, uh, and head of state, read a speech uh, that encouraged people to, quote, I'll quote this, submit themselves to the laws and to devote themselves to upholding the constitution, um, and also asked them to swear eternal hatred um, to the French for good measure. Again, this is part of this uh, uh, <laughs> way of proclaiming independence um, and showing the commitment of Haitians to maintain that independence at all costs. Um, of course, then we have Boiron Tonnerre, um, who is uh, uh, very well known in this 1804 to 1806 period. Um, he wrote, or he played the role of Desalines himself. Um, I think that's so important. I mean, he's, I'm saying he's playing the role. It's not as if it was some like, play, right? It's not a joke. He really becomes, and and this is Madieu who makes this language um, noted, but he's pulling from um, a document from the period. Um, I'm quoting here, His Majesty Desalines, by the organ of Boiron-Tonnerre, pronounced the following speech to the people of Haiti. And so I just, um, that we have Boiron-Tonnerre, who isn't identified sort of as, you know, an author or even within uh, his role in the government, though he has a very important one. He is the one who is you know, Desalines' mouthpiece. He is the one who is reading um, for him. I think that's also just fascinating too. Um, and of course, you know, you have 
um, the different roles that these very important um, members of his government have. Again, I see this as a collaborative effort with different um, people playing different parts, um, playing different roles, if you will. I know that gets into, again, this sort of performative language. But, um, you know, Baron Tonnerre is reading Dessalines' own words in French. And I don't, again, I don't think there's this question like, that it's not Dessalines because it was in French and because Boisrontonet read it, but like he is able, capable of translating and making legible or understandable, um, you know, what the Dessalinian project is. And so he is both an arm of sort of Dessalines, but also the one who is capable uh, of doing this. And, mm -hmm. and I, I make the argument, it's maybe a little bit less important than sort of these other, um, the way I've sort of organized it, but I do think there's a, a piece here of the 1806 or the 1805 Imperial Constitution that is really um, maybe like, uh, I mean, I don't want to say it's trying to solve the problem of Republican opposition, but there's definitely a gesture or, or a way that I see, you know, we've, we've now proclaimed the, um, or now here's the Imperial Constitution, and it's an attempt to maybe address some of these Republican concerns. Um, you know, we're moving away from violence. We, we understand the importance of this crucial foundational moment, mm -hmm. but we are, you know, we are trying to transition this into a sustainable and durable um, state form. Ma pauvre troubadour, je ne puis vivre sans ton amour. Puisque tu es sans père, et moi sans mère, je serai donc ton père, et toi tu seras ma mère. Sur la terre, Toujours les mêmes misères Sur la terre Toujours les mêmes misères Toujours l'amour Qui nous rend fous Tour à tout Sur la terre Toujours les mêmes misères
Guadini, l'histoire de ta vie. Moi, pauvre troubadour, je ne puis vivre sans ton amour. Puisque tu as sans père et moi sans mère, je serai donc ton père et toi, tu seras ma mère. Sur la terre, toujours la même misère. Sur la terre, toujours la même misère. Toujours l'amour qui nous rend fous, tour à tour. Sur la terre, toujours la même misère. Toujours l'amour qui nous rend fou, tour à tour.